Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Martin Stiegmeier. He's the head of research at a company called Morphosis, M-O-R-P-H-O-S-Y-S. I'm going to talk about uh, their uh, cancer protocols that they're working on. So, Martin, thanks for coming. Yeah, hi, Richard. Hi, everybody. Well, tell me about uh, Morphosis. What's the, the premise of the company? Yeah, so Morphosis is a commercial stage biopharma company. We really want to become leader in hemato-oncology and uh, also autoimmune diseases. Well, Morphosis is actually, uh, you know, it has a long history. It has been, you know, background is it really comes from from discovery and uh, science. So it's dedicated to the development and delivery of innovative antibody therapies. And, you know, we did that for almost three years. So if there's a wealth of expertise coming from, you know, from our teams, how to identify and how to develop antibodies. And, uh, you know, some of the molecules that are on the market by now coming out of our platforms are, for example, Tremfire, Guzelkumab. Uh, this is this is a molecule that actually our partner Janssen uh, has been developing in psoriatic bridis and plaque psoriasis. And uh, there's a number of other antibodies uh, that are also in late stage development uh, with other partners like uh, uh, map with Roche or Tilimap with GSK and so on. But we also do also have a proprietary pipeline uh, of uh, new uh, drug candidates. And, and most notably, uh, we have a, call, a drug called, called Monjuvi or Tafacitamab. So Morphosis to successfully actually launched this first cancer drug last July after accelerated FDA approval and brought new hope to patients with an aggressive form of blood cancer called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Uh, we also do have another molecule in our uh, 
prior development, it's called felsartamab. It's an antibody against uh, a molecule uh, called CD38. And there's also a late stage clinical development activity ongoing and uh, also work with, with our partner IMAP in China. So in a nutshell, Morphosis is, is really a, a company that has been focusing on antibody discovery and development in the past you know, 30 years. There's a long legacy, long history. We have uh, over 600 employees uh, located in Germany, uh, close to Munich, and also in the United States in Boston. So as I understand it, when drugs end in MAB, it's a monoclonal antibody, but I don't know if listeners understand the monoclonal antibody production process. Can you, I don't know if you can speak to it, but right. how do you so, produce these antibodies and how are they used? Yes. So, I mean, if, if, if you think about an antibody, you think about this Y-shaped molecule, which has basically two arms, they're called FAP arms. They are binding to a, a given tumor target and they have an FC part. And the way you generate or, or identify antibodies against a certain drug can be, you know, in several ways. And uh, obviously, one way can be by immunizing, for example, animals, uh, which are typically mice or, or rats or rabbits. And sometimes those, those, those mice can also be, or rats can be humanized. Another way of doing this is just really doing it completely synthetically. Uh, and this is a process called phage display, and that is actually Morphosis's legacy. So we we were one among one of the first company that really went into discovering monoclonal antibodies by phage display, and we really were able to tackle all kinds of difficult antigens, so molecules that are recognized by those antibodies. And uh, over the years, I think we identified a hundred monoclonal antibodies that uh, are either in research or in clinical stu uh, studies. And at this point in time, it's more than 25 molecules in, in clinical trials uh, that came out of our uh, libraries and our uh, discovery platforms. So obviously, the, this is the early part of antibody drug discovery, identifying an antibody. And then obviously, the antibody is quite often further engineered. Uh, it's optimized in order then to have it produced in a certain host cell line, typically, for example, an animal cell line that produces uh, the antibody. And ultimately, then this antibody can be administered to patients. How is the therapy administered? Is it intravenous? Is it a pill? So in most of the cases, obviously, it's intravenous injection or infusion. Uh, you can also, and this depends on the physical chemical properties of the antibody, give this antibody uh, subcutaneously. So depending on the formulation, you can also give this just as People get, for example, a shot of heparin after an operation uh, to prevent thrombosis. Uh, you can also give certain kind of therapeutic antibodies uh, via this subcutaneous route of administration, which makes it uh, more easy to be administered as compared maybe to some of the small molecules that sometimes, you know, they, they have an, an oral mode of action or can be administered orally. So what are some of the clinical benefits if someone's, you know, has a particular type of cancer? When do they tend to get this therapy, like, you know, mm -hmm. in, in accordance with the standard of care? And what have been some of the results that you've observed? Yeah, so great question. So if you compare, for example, small molecules and 
I refer to it as large molecules. These are antibodies. There is a couple of advantages and disadvantages. So an antibody, you know, I mean, maybe put it in a different way. Nature, you know, over a million of years developed the immune system uh, in, in, in vertebrate animals and, uh, you know, really optimized this to a really high degree. And out of the immune system, you you know, you are really able to get highly specific drugs. So antibodies typically are highly specific. They only recognize one single target. Whereas if you go, for example, uh, and discover a small molecule, typically you have to take care that the selectivity is high enough that only one or a few targets are being recognized. And, you know, basically with an antibody, you get this for free. Typically, all those antibodies are highly specific. Also, when you think in terms of how long does this antibody last in the body, you know, the human body has evolved itself in a way that antibodies in the body stay for a long time there. The half-life of an antibody is typically like 20 days, 21 days, versus uh, a small molecules that has been syn chemically synthesized, you know, it's typically the half-life is a couple of hours, maybe a day or so, but significantly shorter than for antibodies. So, so therefore, if you administer a small molecule, you have to do this via, for example, oral therapy, but also IV, you have to give this pretty much every day, sometimes twice a day. An antibody you give really like, you know, every three weeks, for example, for cancer therapy or every two weeks. And you also have the advantage that uh, if you give an antibody intravenously, that you can very well control the administration. So if, if, if there is an adverse reaction to the antibody, for example, you can stop immediately if, if, if there's an observation made versus once you have swallowed the tablet, you know, it's not so easy to get rid of this tablet. And, uh, and therefore, especially in, in those kinds of indications like uh, hematological malignancies or solid cancers, you typically encounter a lot of IV drugs or antibodies. And uh, um, some of the most known cancer drugs like Herceptin for breast cancer, Rituximab for B-cell lymphoma, or for other targets like uh, EGFR. So these are typically large molecules or antibodies. So is the therapy administered what, once and then three weeks, they wait and then they administer it again? Or what's the protocol? To Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So, I mean, it comes in all different flavors, obviously. And each and every drug, you know, there's, uh, you optimize the dosage and the scheduling of, of, of such a, a drug. But typically it comes in cycles of, uh, say, uh, every two or three weeks for five or six cycles or something like that, depending on the treatment, depending on the disease. And, uh, you know, sometimes also the toxicities that might be associated with such a treatment. 
Yeah, what are some of the uh, observed trade-offs? Again, what's like what's the clinical benefit and what are some of the difficulties for taking it? So as said before, it requires, so IV administration obviously requires that you, you get an infusion, but I mean, the advantage really here is that it's, it's much better controlled as compared to oral administration. And sometimes the argument is used that convenience for small molecules is superior. It really depends on how severe the disease is. So typically, if you have, you know, let's say cardiovascular uh, treatments uh, in order to control blood pressure. So there, obviously, it's not acceptable to have an IV treatment. However, for such a severe disease as cancer or hematological malignancies, it's very well accepted that it requires an IV administration. So again, clinically, does it tend to lengthen survival times? Does it reduce tumor burden? Like what are some of the, I know it depends on the situation, but what are some of the observed effects when it works? I think you can, you know, if you compare large molecules and small molecules, you can nece- you cannot necessarily make the, the statement that uh, some some of these antibodies are, you know, naturally come with uh, longer survival times uh, as compared to small molecules. However, for certain, let's say, target classes, and typically if you think in terms of immuno-oncology and think about targets like PD-1, so-called checkpoint molecules, typically these treatments uh, where you block this target uh, CD1 or its ligand, CD1 ligand, you get very long lasting and durable responses that you know, typically you might not see with, with some of the uh, small molecule treatments. So, so this kind of immunotherapy is, is really, uh, you know, there has been a lot of hype and hope in, in, in the last you know, decade or, or, or several years as compared to, uh, to some of the, let's say, small molecules or even chemotherapy that has been used in, you know, in the decades before. Yeah, when someone's administered, you know, one of the monoclonal antibody therapies, over time, does their body pick up on it and make their own antibodies? Or is it something that has to be administered throughout the whole course of their disease? Well, I think, you know, it really, again, it depends on therapy. If you think in terms of immunotherapies, you know, you you very well by administering, for example, antibodies like uh, anti-PD-1 antibody, you strengthen the immune system and enable the immune system to react to uh, certain new epitopes that are generating during uh, tumorigenesis. And thereby, you really indeed basically engage the immune system of, of the hoster, the cancer patient in this case. So, so this really is a potential benefit. And, you know, when we talk about monoclonal antibody, we really also have to differentiate about the, say, I, I refer to this as the plain vanilla antibody. I mentioned, you know, the Y-shaped antibody before, or, uh, you know, more recently, uh, there has been a lot of activity around discovering and developing bi- or multi-specific antibodies, and they also certainly come in different flavors. And, and, and the uniqueness of those antibodies is really that they don't only bind to a certain target, but they, they have a certain additional, let's say, functionality, or we call this mode of action, in order to, you know, to elicit a certain response from patients. So one, one prominent example, for example, for such a bi-specific antibody is a so-called T-cell engager molecule. And what I mean by this is that basically... If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. 
the antibodies by specific, it binds to two different targets. So say, and one target could be, for example, a tumor antigen, and another target uh, could be, uh, for example, a, a certain receptor on a T cell. And typically, uh, a, a target that is used on the T cell is it's called CDC, a CD3 cluster designation 3. And by doing so, this antibody kind of uh, engages a T cell and, and brings it to close proximity to the tumor cell, in turn, binding to that receptor CD3 causes the T cell to be activated. And this activation results in, for example, degranulation uh, that, that kills the tumor cells. And in a way you turn this T cell then into really a serial killer. And uh, that T cell, that activated T cell then moves from one to the next tumor cell to really kill the tumor very rapidly. So this is kind of like the next generation of, of antibodies that are, you know, there's a lot of those kinds of things currently in development. And obviously this is only one form of, you know, exploiting the bispecific antibodies. There, there's, there's numerous other biologies that you can elicit with such a dual functionality or with a multifunctionality. Yeah, excellent. How did how did you guys pick? How did Morphosis pick the conditions to work on? I know there's you know probably hundreds of different kinds of cancers and other diseases. So again, how did you guys pick and why? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned this before, we are you know compared to some of the big pharma companies like uh, Novartis or Roche or GSK, we are a relatively small company with uh, about you know, six hundred plus employees, and it's not like that we can basically develop our drugs in all kinds of different indications. You know, we very carefully think about the indications uh, that we would like to tackle. And, you know, most notably, certainly we look at, at indications that are of highest unmet medical need and not necessarily looking into some of the you know, cardiovascular drugs or something like this. So when, 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 we, when we think about you know, where we would like to develop a, a, a molecule that, that certainly is, is in, in those kind of indications, and typically, for example, with our molecule tafacitumab, this is in the area of hematology, uh, where we have a lot of expertise, and uh, uh, we focus, you know, Certainly, in you know, with with tafacitumab on hematology, but also with a lot of our drugs that in our pipeline, you know, hematology is is a key focus. Certainly, there is also some other solid uh, tumor indications that we focus on, but uh, it is not like that we explore each and every indication that you know that typically would require so many different clinical trials that we wouldn't be able to run with our limited resources. Oh, I, you know, I'm sure there's thousands of possible conditions. You know, what, what I've seen usually is, uh, you know, maybe one of the founders had personal experience with the condition or, you know, there's other reasons driving it. But that's why I wanted to know is the, you know, the story of morphosis. Uh, again, why these conditions? I know you have to pick something and focus. So that makes sense, at least. Yeah. So for, for, for tafacitumab, it was certainly there's, there's a unique biology. There's the target for tafacitumab is CD19, which is very specific for B cells. And, uh, you know, targeting B cells uh, with, with an antibody is, you know, it's, it's highly efficacious. And at the same time, the toxicities are limited. This, this actually is different also if you think in terms of some of the solid tumor targets. And there, typically, the targets are not as 
let's say, as clean or exclusively expressed on a certain lineage of cells like B cells or so. So if you think in terms of solid tumor cancer targets, and you know, some of them you've heard probably for HER2 or EGFR or folate receptor, they are highly expressed on cancer cells, but you also quite often find uh, expression on normal tissue, on, uh, on normal gut or on uh, skin uh, or, or other really uh, vital or organs. And, uh, you know, depending on the dose that you give your drug with, you, you can encounter uh, quite a bit of toxicity. So the solid tumor setting is even more complex and difficult than some of the hematological malignancies. So nevertheless, I mean, there's a couple of approaches that also we are trying to, to advance and develop in morphosis in order to overcome some of those shortcomings. So, for example, I talked before about T-cell engager molecules that typically uh, bind to a, a single tumor target, and this works great for many hematological malignancies, but these uh, malignancies, this approach is limited when we think about solid tumors, uh, for example, colorectal cancer or ovarian cancer or something like this. But the way we are trying to tackle this is that basically we pick two targets that are expressed on one type of tumor, but they're not found at the same time, at the same type of normal tissue. And we then basically by protein engineering, take the anti-CD3 antibody apart, basically make kind of like a pro truck out of it. And one half of the CD3 molecule, we, uh, we fuse to an antibody binding to target A, the other part of the CD3, we are fusing to an antibody targeting target B. And by this dual specificity, uh, we are really dramatically increasing the selectivity. And now here comes the trick. So once the two antibodies bind at the, at the surface of the tumor cell, the anti-CD3 antibody gets basically reassembles itself and becomes functional before it's inactive. But at the side of the tumor, it starts to recruit T cells and the T cells start to, you know, kill the, the cancer cells. While on normal tissue where you only have one target, but not the other one, you only have one part of, of basically this, this complex. And by this approach, which is, which is, you know, from an engineering point of view, really difficult, you know, the hope is certainly that you dramatically enlarge or open up the, ther the so-called therapeutic window. And thereby, ultimately, this, you know, this has the potential to translate into much more meaningful clinical responses. So this, this is a platform that, that we of at Morphosis call uh, CYTCAT, uh, which stands for cytotoxic cell activation at the tumor, where basically, you know, you really have this protoc approach uh, where two complementary fragments of CD3 reconstitute itself at the tumor site and, and there then actually become active, but not before. Okay, so this toolkit enabling cytotoxic uh, T cells is, is going to be a big, uh, it's going to be very important, it sounds like, for morphosis going forward, right? Absolutely. I think it's important that if you think in terms of, you know, what can I do with an antibody? You know, we came a long way with respect to antibody drug discovery. In the past, it was... Uh, People were targeting, basically raising antibodies against a certain receptor, against a certain ligand, uh, blocking some kind of an interaction. So I think in nowadays, it becomes increasingly more difficult to really identify suitable 
targets that would by just such a simple antibody approach really would, you know, transform the treatment paradigm or add benefit on top to the already existing antibodies. So if we think in terms of differentiation and being competitive nowadays, it's really combining uh, the formats, the bispecific formats and the technology, the engineering with the biology, with the underlying biology, and thereby really fully exploiting the potential of such an antibody approach or differentiated antibody approach. And this, this really then brings us to the next generation of antibodies and with, you know, hopefully half superior activity, su superior tolerability and really add, you know, benefit to, to our patients in need. If we look out a year or two, what's possible? And if we look out five plus years, what's possible for morphosis? I think in in a year or two from now, I think I, I you know, I, I can't disclose our early pipeline at this point in time. I think, you know, overall, if we look at, if I talk about uh, our uh, later stage pipeline, I think certainly where there's a lot of attention on currently is on tafacitamab. And uh, I mentioned before that uh, we got the approval uh, last year for uh, relapse refractory diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So this is basically, you know, second line and beyond treatment. So, you know, we initiated trials also that, you know, moving earlier with this kind of treatment, uh, and in that case, it's in combination with another drug called lenalidomide, that we are taking this regimen into earlier lines of therapy, uh, into first line BLBCL, and certainly uh, there, there's a lot of activity there and, you know, from our development organization in order to further establish the treatment, the tafacitamab uh, treatment in, uh, in earlier lines of therapy and maybe also in, in, in other B-cell malignancies than diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. So, so stay tuned on development on, on, on tafacitamab and also combining tafacitamab with, with other drugs. Uh, we also have this antibody called filzartamab, which uh, targets another kind of hematological cells and uh, we use this for targeting plasma cells that, that, that make a lot of autoantibodies. And also this kind of drug is currently in, in, in clinical trials uh, in, in certain autoimmune settings. And also there we hope to see a clinical proof of concept, hopefully soon. At the earlier pipeline, you know, I, I mentioned to you some of those uh, psychet uh, approaches this uh, cytotoxic cell activation at the tumor. It's kind of like the next generation of T-cell engager. So there we have a number of programs focusing on hematological, but but even more so on solid tumor cancers. And, and, and many of our resources currently go into this uh, SciCAD platform. Uh, on top of that, there's a other, couple of other undisclosed targets that I can't talk about it today. So what's the best place for people to find out more about morphosis? Well, simply go to our, you know, webpage and uh, look into our pipeline. But, but also, you know, we are well presented, uh, represented on those meetings like the AACR, American Association for Cancer Research, 
uh, or uh, ASCO, American Clinical uh, Oncology Society, or some of the lim uh, lymphoma or hematology meetings like ASH, American Society for Hematology. So these kind of meetings, there are typically talks are given about of our drugs. There's posters, there's abstracts, uh, where you really can find out a lot more about, uh, you know, how, how those molecules perform, what kind of responses were observed uh, or durable responses were or, uh, observed. So uh, there's a lot of update given also at the, at the recent ASH meeting uh, about, uh, for example, tafacitamab. Well, very good. Well, Martin, thank you for coming on the podcast. And, uh, you know, I encourage people to check out Morphosis. You know, unfortunately, if they have a need personally or if they, uh, they want to find out about the company's pipeline and its work. So thank you again for coming on the podcast. Yes, thanks a lot, Richard. Thanks a lot uh, for giving me the opportunity to present some of our work uh, in your podcast. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.